to you. That your name would be the sweetest name in our hearts. It would be the sweetest name on our lips. And it is sweet to us as we experience you on the pages of Scripture. As we know you in the moments of our life. As we seek you in prayer and we seek to obey you and to know you and to honor you and serve you. As we're continually brought before the cross to receive from you mercy and grace and forgiveness and the strength to carry on until we do meet together with you on that glorious day. That glorious day that we anticipate and that we sing about and that we remember this morning in your table. Will you help us, Spirit of God, to taste of the glory of Christ in another small measure as we open your word this morning? We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we have been walking through the gospel of Matthew, and as Jesus has been coming nearer to the cross, nearer to those events in which he will give his life as a sacrifice for his people where his body will be broken and his blood will be spilled, one reality keeps becoming much more clear, much more striking. And it is this, that Jesus is not the kind of Messiah that the people wanted. He is not the kind of Messiah that the people were expecting. And Matthew has made clear throughout the gospel, as have the other writers of the life of Jesus, that the people have throughout his ministry been wrestling with who is this man? What is his real identity? Even the disciples, though they were called into close fellowship with him and they were privy to his special teaching and to witness his works of power in a unique way, were slow to come to a full understanding and knowledge of the glory of Christ. In Matthew 8, 27, after Jesus calmed the sea, they cried out, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? John the Baptist, at the end of his life, struggled some with the identity of Christ, and he needed to be encouraged. And so in chapter 11, Verse 3, he sent messengers to Jesus and they said, Are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? He was struggling. He needed encouragement. And it was even more confusing for the people. So Jesus asked his disciples in chapter 16, verse 13, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do they say that I am? The disciples respond, Some say John the Baptist. Others, Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And in contrast to their confusion, Jesus asks Peter, and he gives one of the clearest confessions or statements about the person of Christ in all of Scripture. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now yet at this point, even Peter, though he made that confession by the revelation of the Father given to him through the Spirit, did not fully understand all the implications of it. He did not understand everything that that meant, which becomes immediately clear when Jesus, following a prophecy future about Peter and the church, tells of his coming suffering and death, and Peter, as we remember, takes him aside to rebuke him because that was too far outside of his understanding and concept of who the Messiah was and what the Messiah 
should be. So the question is, should that have been outside of his understanding? What kind of Messiah and kingdom should the people have been expecting? Now we've addressed this in parts and bits and pieces up to this point, but I want to stop for a moment to push the pause button, as it were, to consider the bigger picture broadly. What kind of Messiah should the people have been expecting? What kind of Messiah was anticipated by the prophets? And what kind of Messiah should they and should we embrace and believe in and rejoice in? Now, in one sense, the the entire whole Old Testament is preparing for the person of Christ. All of Scripture revealed up to the coming of Christ was meant to prepare the people for the coming of their Messiah. In a variety of ways this happened, whether it was by defining for them what perfect righteousness should look like, whether it was through the promises that God gave, the many types and the many shadows that are throughout the Old Testament that are pointing to the coming one, whether it be the direct statements of the Old Testament Scripture, everything that God had revealed up to that point was meant to prepare the people for the appearing and the coming and the advent of their Messiah. In essence, their God. Now Jesus told the leaders, He said these, speaking of the Old Testament Scriptures in John 35, these testify about Me. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Everything in the law and the prophets was pointing to Him. And He was the perfect fulfillment of it. Now the term Messiah we use often, and I want to just remind us of what it means briefly. There's much more that could be said, but... Essentially, the term Messiah has a literal meaning of to spread, to spread a liquid. The Greek equivalent of Messiah is Christ, and it speaks not so much of His person, but it speaks of His office, the offices that He would embody in His person. So while it had a literal meaning, and it's used at times that way in the Scriptures, its primary meaning was symbolic, and it was Oil, then, that was spread on the head of those who were anointed by God. That's where we get the term, the anointed ones. And essentially, it was used, this oil spread on those anointed by God, on three particular offices, on kings, on priests, and on prophets, each of of whom were chosen by God and marked out, in some sense, as a mediator of God to the people. A mediator of the sacrifices, a mediator of his word, or a mediator of his rule over his people. Now each of the men who filled these offices were in some way then a precursor to the Messiah. It is not untrue to say that they were all in a sense messiahs. That's what the word means. But all of them were imperfect. All of them were affected by Sin, And so the people longed for one who would be the ultimate Messiah, who would be the final Messiah, who would be the final one to fulfill all of these roles for God's people. That is essentially what they were anticipating. Now there were in some circles of the Jews a belief that there were two Messiahs, that there were in fact two Messiahs, that there was a 
priestly Messiah and that there was a Davidic Messiah. And while there was that understanding and many other nuances, what nobody grasped of the people of God was that there would be one Messiah who would come in two advents, that there would be two comings of one man and that they would be of a different character. However, the Old Testament scriptures clearly present two pictures of the realities and circumstances surrounding both these appearances of the Messiah, and each one accomplishing a different aspect of his ministry. And the problem was that, in reality, the Judaism of Jesus' day only focused on one of those pictures, on one of those appearings of the Messiah. Therefore, they were expecting a Messiah other than Jesus was. Now, after the resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the apostles and the people would get it, and as is evident by the preaching of Peter and of Philip and Paul and others, as they built their case for Christ on the Old Testament scriptures as they proclaimed him to the people. Now, that being said, there is a part of us that understands and that God recognizes about the coming of Christ that is somewhat confusing, that is somewhat unclear, at least in its details. Don't turn there, but First Peter said this, speaking of that, of this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. In other words, as the Word of God came through the prophets, the Word of God that anticipated the coming of Christ, they did not fully understand the details, but they did understand, and what was certain is that Messiah would come, He would come and bring salvation, and that Messiah, according to 1 Peter, they understood would suffer. They just didn't know the details of how this was all going to take place. They couldn't figure out the timing or the sequence of events. Now, there is more to understanding all that's behind this than we could possibly cover this morning. And there are a variety of ways in which we could approach the Old Testament understanding of the Messiah. I want to narrow it and focus on what kind of Messiah the people in Jesus' day as we walk through the Gospels were expecting from the Old Testament and what about their understanding in the Old Testament was missing that caused them to miss the person of Christ, their own Messiah, when He actually did come. The fact that they should have understood from the Old Testament only makes their rejection and their blindness of Jesus all the more Grievous, and it makes their culpability all the more serious. Now, we're going to look at this essentially in two different categories and two different pictures or portraits of the Messiah that was given by God to his people and to us. The first looks at Jesus in his role as king, and the second looks at Jesus in his role as one who would suffer and atone for the people's sin. Now, the first text then. That speaks of Jesus, or the Messiah, we should say, and his kingship is found in the book of Genesis. Now, we're going to be flipping around to a lot of passages, so you can follow along with me to Genesis 49. Genesis 49. Now, in Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12 is what we'll be looking at, but in Genesis 49... 
This is a prophecy from Israel about his 12 sons who would be the 12 tribes of Israel, who would form the 12 tribes of the nation of the people of God. Now, when we come into Genesis 49, God, just as he told Abraham back in Genesis 15, has brought his people now into another land, and they, are, they came to the land of Egypt, and they, in fact, are in Egypt in Genesis 49. Israel is old. He's about to die. These are his final words to his 12 sons. And it is a prophecy about their future. The things that are going to define them as time unfolds. In Genesis 49, 8-12 is the most important of these prophecies. And it's given to Israel's son Judah. His son Judah. And he says in verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his fowl to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Speaking of prosperity and abundance. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Go back up to verse 9 or verse 8. In a fashion similar to the promise made to Joseph, Israel tells his son Judah... That he is going to be one exalted among his brothers, and your brothers will bow down to you. And then he says in verse 10 something that is essential to our understanding and their understanding of the Messiah. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Now the scepter and the staff were accessories or symbols of rule, of kingship, of reigning. Thus, he's saying, the kings of Israel shall come from the descendants of Judah. And then he narrows it down even more, and he says, until Shiloh comes. Now, this phrase has been understood in a variety of ways. Some of you may even have in your margins some of the different translations. It's understood as until Shiloh comes, or until he comes to Shiloh, or until he comes to whom it belongs. However, however one understands the phrase, although it is universally understood, almost universally, to understand or to be a reference to the coming of the Messiah, to the coming of the Messiah, to coming of one who will be from the tribe of Judah, who will rule and reign over God's people, and who will be exalted among his brothers. And so he says at the end of verse 10, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In other words, this one who comes will reign with authority, glory, and righteousness over all the peoples of God. Turn over to another text, 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, verse 7. Now, we've looked at this in parts. We're going to look at it a little bit more closely this morning. 2 Samuel, chapter 7. And this is the next major step forward. And so the people were anticipating a king that would come from the tribe of Judah. Now in 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16, we come to the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant. Now the context is this. 
after God brought Israel into the promised land, they dwelled in it without a human king. Now, God was their true king, but nonetheless, they were a rebellious people. And the book of Judges chronicles their continual rebellion to God and God's continual deliverances of his people as he raised up judges for them when they cried out to him for mercy. Now, eventually, they would ask for a human king, which is precisely what God anticipated and prophesied he looked forward to in Deuteronomy chapter 17, 14. And it comes to fruition in 1 Samuel 8, 5. Don't turn there. The people cry out to Samuel and they say to him, appoint a king for us to judge us like all of the nations. They didn't want God as their king. They wanted a king like the nations. They wanted a human king to rule over them. So God gave them Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. You remember the account? And Saul started out well. Saul was a good warrior and he won many battles for God. But he was spiritually unfaithful and removed from his throne. And so God replaced him with David, who was from the tribe of Judah, which is brilliantly recorded for us in the book of Ruth, in the midst of the time of Judges. How God is preserving this promise that he gave through Isaac concerning the tribe of Judah. And it is through the tribe of Judah that, the, uh, that David would be chosen. And he was different than Saul. Saul who ended up going his own way. Saul who was never obedient fully to the Lord was removed. But David was different. And in 1 Samuel 13, 14, he is described like this. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. David was one whose life would be marked as a man who fully follows after his God. Now after a period of tension in which Saul became jealous... And sought David's life. Saul eventually died in battle with the Philistines. And David sat on the throne of Israel. Once on the throne. The city of Jerusalem was established as the city of the king. The tabernacle was brought eventually to the city of Jerusalem. Amid great rejoicing and pomp. And David when all of this was happening. Saw that the ark of God. That the tabernacle of God did not yet have a house. So the ark of God did not yet have a house. So he expressed his desire to Nathan that he wanted to build a temple for God. First, Nathan encouraged him. But then after receiving a word from the Lord, Nathan goes back to David and he delivers this message, which we have in verses 8 through 16. And essentially the message is this. David, you want to build a house for me, but I've not given you that command. But I will give you this promise. You won't build a house for me, but I will build a house for you. In other words, I will build for you a legacy that will endure forever. He then promises him in tandem with the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Look at verse 9. I will cut off all of your enemies. I will make you a great name. In verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people, a place in which they will live then in peace and prosperity. And then in verse 11, he says this at the end of the verse. The Lord will make a house for you. The Lord will make a house for you. Now, after this, God gives another promise that will be immediately and partially fulfilled in David's son Solomon. But have full fulfillment in Messiah. Look at verse 12. He says, 
I will raise up your descendant or seed after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom forever. One is going to come from you who is going to sit on your throne and it is going to be an enduring throne. He then speaks of Solomon's building of the temple, his discipline of Solomon for his sin, and then he ends in verse 16 with this statement. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And it is from this promise then that the people of God understood that a ruler was going to come and he was going to be from the line of David and he was going to rule over God's people with permanence and with power and with glory. Now David died, of course, and Solomon his son ascended to the throne. As we know, Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem and the kingdom and the temple of Solomon were glorious. And the whole epic of Solomon's reign was a high point in the life of the people of God in the history of Israel. As we know, Solomon sinned in the latter part of his life with many wives. His heart was turned away and God disciplined him by splitting the kingdom. So when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam made a foolish decision And from this, the kingdoms end up splitting. Ten tribes went to the north with the capital of Samaria under the leadership of one Jeroboam. And then the southern tribes went and they dwelled in Judah, first under the leadership of, at that time, Rehoboam. Now basically, the northern kingdom was an apostate kingdom. And throughout the whole history of the northern kingdoms of Israel, there was no good king. They were all wicked. They all rebelled against the Lord. And so God eventually judged those tribes with the nation of Assyria in 722 B.C. They were removed from the land, never to be a separate nation again. The southern kingdom, however, had plenty of wicked kings, but God also preserved them with many good kings, keeping his promise alive. We know some of these, Hezekiah, Josiah, Uzziah, and others. But the point is this, that God remained faithful to his promise. The scepter of all legitimate kings never departed from Judah, and David never lacked a man to sit on the throne over God's people. However... Even with the southern tribes of Judah, though they had some good kings, their wickedness was enough for God to eventually judge them too. And between the periods of 605 to 586 BC, God finally came and he wiped out his people. He wiped out Jerusalem and he sent the southern tribes of Judah into captivity under the hand of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And there they stayed for a period of 70 years. Now, eventually, God brought them back into the land under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. However, the nation of Israel was never a sovereign nation again as they were before, and they never had a king again to sit on the throne of David as was anticipated. Now, here's the key then. God's promise to David for a king to sit on his throne and rule over the nations in glory and righteousness was never abrogated, nor was it forgotten. But it was still the hope of the people of Israel. It was still the hope of the people of God. And it was the anticipation of the prophets. And so the people, though they did not have their own land and sovereign nation as before, longed for that day when they would again and one would sit on the throne of David and he would rule over the people. 
So there was then this prophetic anticipation of the Davidic king and his kingdom that was at the heart of Judaism, was at the heart of how they identified themselves, how they anticipated their future, and what their hope was in. Now last week we looked at two very key texts, Isaiah chapter 9 and Ezekiel 34. But I'm not going to repeat those here, but I want to expand expand it out even just a little bit more. So just listen, you can turn along to these if you want, but I want you to hear some, there's obviously too many to read, but some of the key text that was in the thinking of God's people, that was informing their understanding of this coming one and of this Messiah. Listen as I read. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6. The prophet says this, Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. In Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16, the prophet says this by the Spirit of God. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called, speaking of Jerusalem, the Lord is our righteousness, is our righteousness. Fast forward to Ezekiel 37, verses 24 and 25. The prophet anticipates again, My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Verse 28, the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, who sets Israel apart just as he did at the Exodus. That day is coming again. He says, when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Listen to Psalm 132. For the sake of David, your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. There I will cause the horn or the strength or the power and the authority of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. Psalm 2, one of the royal psalms. David said, uh, the The writer says this, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This day is coming. And these royal psalms were applied immediately to the human king who sat on David's throne, but understood ultimately to be looking forward to the king of kings, the final king, the Messiah. The point is this, that a king is coming in the line of David. This king bears a unique relationship to God. He will share uniquely in his glory. He will reign over his people in righteousness and power. He will defeat all of God's enemies, which a Jew understood and understand those Jews 
in Jesus' day that we'll encounter next week, understood an enemy of God to be who? A non-Jew. A non-Jew, a Gentile. Furthermore, he will rule over a kingdom that will crush all other kingdoms, and it will endure forever, and he will execute judgment on the wicked. So let's look at the character of this kingdom. Just listen again. About four passages here. Daniel chapter 2, verse 42, 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all of these kingdoms. But it itself will endure forever. Forever. Daniel 7. In a vision. One, like a son of man, was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Isaiah 35, say to those with an anxious, anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. And the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. Zechariah 14, The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. Lastly, Psalm 24, another royal psalm. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The point is this. The people's anticipation of a king and a Messiah who would come in glory, who would sit on the throne of David, who would reign over God's people from a restored Jerusalem, one in whom the nations would acknowledge him as being the ultimate king, who would acknowledge Israel as being the people of God, who would exercise dominion and reign and rule and glory over all of the earth. That was a right anticipation. It's all over the prophets. There was this king who is coming. He is coming. The anticipation was correct. All of these things will take place. This was not a wrong hope in and of itself. The problem was it was incomplete and misunderstood. And the heart of the issue then was this. That they missed the nature of their own covenant and relationship with God. They missed it, and therefore they missed the nature of Messiah's reign. Ultimately, their Messiah was going to come, but it was not only about glory, it was also about reconciliation and atonement. Now, in order to understand this, we need to go back even further, or farther for some of you. Uh, Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And let's look at this. How did they misunderstand their covenant? How did they misunderstand this? Well, Genesis 3.15 establishes that problem for us. Again, the context, you know. Genesis 1 through 2, God's, it's an account of God's creation of all things. Now, the essential element of creation or the essential aspect of it is this, that he says in Genesis 1.31, what? It 
was very good. It was very good. In other words, it was holy in the sense that it was without sin. It was a perfect reflection of the glory and of the beauty and of the harmony of God and all that God designed it for. And the high point of God's creation was man, whom he created in his image to rule over his creation and whom he created to live in fellowship with and in a relationship of blessing. A relationship of blessing. Now in chapter 3, we know what happened. Adam and Eve sinned. And the whole human race in that one act of rebellion against God was plummeted into a condition of spiritual death and of sin that would mark man until the end of the ages. Man's fellowship and intimacy with God was immediately broken as it evidenced by the fact that Adam and Eve, the next time we see them, are hiding themselves from God and from one another. Unity and the joy and the blessing and the harmony is gone. They have advocated their role and their position. Now, after God gives them an opportunity to confess, they immediately resort to excuses, blaming God and blaming one another and blaming the serpent. And so God turns to them and he announces his judgment first upon the serpent, then on the woman, and then on the man. And it's his judgment on the serpent which takes place first, which is the devil, in which he also makes the first promise of salvation. And that's what we have in verse 15. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is amazing. Absolutely amazing. There's so much that could be said about this, but I want to pull out to you two essential parts of this promise. Two essential parts. The first is with the seed. The seed. The seed is both physical and spiritual. In other words, he's identifying two lines of people that will mark all people on the earth. The righteous and the unrighteous. And it is a relationship that then will be marked by conflict. By conflict. And ultimately, he says to the serpent that... Your seed will bruise the one coming from the woman on the head, but the one coming from the woman who is its own seed will destroy you. He will wipe you out. He will destroy your works. And this is exactly what we see through the history of God's people. And we see it highlighted at the time of Christ. What did Jesus tell the leaders? John eight forty four. You are of who? Your father, the devil. You are of your father, the devil. In 1 John 3, 8, John lays out for us two kinds of people. He says there are the children of God and there are the children of the devil. The children of the devil are marked by sin. The children of God are marked by righteousness. And then he launches into the example of Cain and Abel. We see it get focused at the very night of Jesus' last supper with his disciples in which Satan, the devil, put into the heart of Judas to betray him, to betray him, and to hand him over. So is the conflict that would be marked throughout the ages. A line of those who belong to God, and a line of those who are in rebellion to God. Now this promise of the seed then became the heart of the promise of all of God's subsequent promises after that. Who was this one going to be? Was it going to be Abel? Was it going to be Seth? 
And then it's carried on through Noah. And then it's carried on through Noah's son, Shem. And then from Shem, it's carried on through Abraham. From Abraham, it's carried on to Isaac. From Isaac, it's carried on to Jacob, and so on. This promise of the seed. This promise of one who is going to come. Now it is with Abraham, the history of the Jews, that their part of the promise comes into focus and comes into being. God promised Abraham that through his descendants, the nations would be blessed. They would be blessed. In Genesis 15, 6, God repeats that promise. And then it says this, that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And this is the essential component of the covenant and its blessing. Faith in God's promises and a righteousness, listen, that is received from God. That's the heart of the covenant. Later, God added the Mosaic Covenant when he delivers his people as a nation from Egypt. He establishes the ark, the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. But all of these things were meant to lead the people into humble repentance and hope in God's mercy, in his mercy. They were a reminder that their sin separates them from God, but that God has provided mediation through the priesthood, through the sacrifices that the people came that marked atonement for their sin. Now the true Jew understood that the blood of animals never finally removed sin. As the writer of Hebrews said, the blood of bulls and goats could never make the worshiper clean in conscience. It was never able to be an act as a final sacrifice. And so they trusted God and they believed his promise to send one who would come and make an end to sin. The true Jews did. However, what happened is the people separated the two promises. They separated the reality of atonement from the promises of a king and of a ruler and of a nation. They understood Messiah's prophetic ministry, his role as king, but they did not fully understand his priestly ministry and they completely missed his role as substitute and sacrifice. They missed it all. Interestingly, This promise of the seed shows up again after Genesis in one other place or in another place. And that is with the promise that God made to David. He's silent on this seed promise until he makes his covenant that we briefly looked at with David in 2 Samuel 7. And David then is marked as a precursor of the Messiah. A prototype of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah would be like. And many of the aspects of his life then were prophetic of this coming one. And that is in no exception in as it pertains to David's suffering, to his suffering. Now, there are many experiences of suffering in David's life that he talks about that were not fulfilled in his life, but were fulfilled in the life of the Messiah. And the people should have understood this. I want to look at just a couple of them. Turn over to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Psalm where we're familiar with at least parts of it. Psalm 22. Now, the opening words of this psalm are most familiar to us because they are the words uttered by our Lord after the three dark hours in which his soul was crushed as he bore the weight of the sin of his people. My God, verse 1, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? The very words that are found on the lips of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 27, 46, Mark 15. And only the first lines are recorded for us here, although it's argued by some that he repeated the entire psalm. We can't be sure either way. It's conjecture. 
However, whether we recited the rest of the psalm or not, it does contain many prophetic elements that were fulfilled not in the life of David, but in the crucifixion of Christ. He talks about, I cried to you all day long and you did not answer, speaking here of the abandonment. David felt abandonment in a sense, but it was the Messiah who would feel the ultimate abandonment on the cross as the Father turned his face away from him. He knows that he was mocked, that he was ridiculed. Look at verse 7. They sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their head. And they say, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Because he delights in him. And you'll remember the mocking of Jesus on the cross when he cried out after he cried out to God and they said, well then let Elijah come and save him. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. This one who claimed to be the Messiah. All of these anticipated here in the life of David. He says in verse 12, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a raving and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. No account of this in the life of David. But in either case, all of these anticipating exactly what would happen to Messiah as they took his outer garments and the soldiers divided it. They cast lots for it at the foot of the cross. His bones out of joint, his suffering of dehydration is exactly what was part of the physical suffering on the cross as they hung there. If you remember in John 19, Jesus said, I thirst, 1928. And they brought to his mouth some wine, something to ease his pain and his thirst. The remainder of the psalm speaks of the trust of David in the Lord's deliverance, though some of these final parts are also spoken of Christ. I want to move on. The prophets also anticipated his suffering in language that was clearly directed to the Messiah. Don't turn there. In Zechariah 12.10, we'll look at this more next week. He says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. And this is a particularly striking reference because clearly in the context, it is the Lord God, Yahweh, who is pierced. This is quoted, as a matter of fact, in reference to Christ directly in John 19.37 as he hung on the cross. He says, this is in part a fulfillment of them looking on him whom they have pierced. It's repeated again in Revelation 1-7 when speaking of the return of Christ that they, his people, will also again look on him whom they have pierced. Isaiah chapter 50, verses 6 through 7 anticipate this coming suffering of the Messiah. Clearly a reference to the Messiah. Some take this as to Isaiah, but this is clearly a reference here to the Messiah. He says in verse... Six, after verse 5, giving a perfect portrait of the prophet of God. 
The Lord has opened my ear. I was not disobedient. I did not turn my back. In verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. And I did not cover my face from humiliation and from spitting. Precisely what happened in the life of the Lord Jesus. After they condemned him, the Jewish council, the false Jewish council, they put a, something over his head. They hit him with his fist, the Gospels tell us, and they spit in his face. They humiliated him as much as they possibly could. And it was no less when he was before the Gentiles and the Romans and they put a crown of thorn on his head and wrapped him in a purple robe and beat him on the head with a reed, Matthew 26 and 27. But the most essential passage that we're familiar with, turn over just another page or two, is Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. This is an essential passage regarding the anticipation of the suffering and atoning death of the Messiah. Now there is much that could be said here, of course, and we will only mention a few highlights. In Isaiah 53 is an anticipation of the servant who is going to suffer on behalf of God's people. And I will remind us again that the Jewish explanation of this passage is referring to Israel is absolutely impossible and only shows their rebellion to take the passage for what it says, namely that it is about not Israel, but the one who would die as a substitute for Israel on their behalf. And the chapter reads like a biography of the life of Christ like a theological commentary on the life of Christ and His atoning death and His purpose for it. He was, as we remembered, rejected and despised of men. Verse 14 of 52, His appearance was marred more than any man, His form more than sons of men. Likely referring there to the, the deformity of His body that took place after the beatings and so forth. He hardly looked human. He grew up like a tender shoot, a root out of parched ground. No stately form or majesty that we should look on him. That was certainly the case. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. We esteemed him not. Verse 4, our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, which is exactly what the Jews said. He was rejected by God. He was rejected as a blasphemer. He was condemned as a heretic by his own people, condemned to death. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, which is exactly what Jesus said to his disciples. He came, why? To give his life as a ransom for many. By his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. That's a whole history of mankind and particularly the history of Israel, but the Lord in verse 6 has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He was gentle and meek. Verse 7, he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shears. So he did not open his mouth. Pilate was amazed that when the charges were being brought against him, he said nothing, but he remained silent and he simply received them. Why? Because he had given his body over to be broken. His blood to be spilt. This is exactly what had to happen and that the prophet anticipates. Gentle and meek like a lamb. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. His generation considered he was cut off out of the land of living. 
but it was for the transgression of the people for whom he took the stroke. His grave, verse 9, assigned with wicked men, the two robbers crucified with him. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, Joseph of Arimathea, you'll remember, a rich man who had become a disciple of Jesus, went and gave his own tomb so that he could be buried. Though he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he'll see his offspring. He'll prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge or his experience of all of these sufferings. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. The point is this, that Israel should have anticipated a Savior who would die as a substitute for sin. They should have been longing. They should have been been zealous. They should have been hungering for a Messiah who would finally make them clean in conscience. But in order to do that, they had to be a people who first understood their defilement of their own conscience and the true intent of the law, which was to bring them to their knees and to show them that they needed the mercy of God. That was the point. But they never saw that. And so they never needed a Messiah like Isaiah 53. And they didn't want one like him. They were not broken in their conscience. They did not see their need to be reconciled to God. For their sin to be atoned for in the way that Jesus would do that. And so they wanted a king that would restore the glory. They got those prophecies just fine. But they did not want a king who would be crucified and who would die for their place, in their place. And so they missed him. And so they missed him. And we'll look at that more as we see their reaction as they welcome him on empty praise into the city of Jerusalem. But this is the great glory of Christ our Savior. He is the one we rejoice in. He is the Lord. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the lamb slain that would bring us to God. He is the king who will return in judgment. We just read that for over 13 chapters in Revelation. He will come and remove the wicked from his kingdom. He will establish his throne on earth. His glory will be over all of the earth. He will rule in righteousness. He will be the delight of the nations. But first he had to be the king to purchase it. First he had to be the king who suffered. First he had to be the king who would give his body to be broken. Who would give his blood to be broken. To be spilled in our place. He had to be the slave. He had to be the servant. And he was a servant to his people. And a servant to us. He's a king who became a slave and a sacrifice. To give his life as a ransom for many. And though many miss it. That's exactly what we celebrate this morning in the Lord's table. The king of kings. The lord of lords. The maker of the ends of the earth. The glorious one who is at the right hand of the Father and who will return in power and glory and establish his kingdom has told us, his people, remember my sacrifice to bring you into my kingdom. That's the character of the kingdom. That's the character of your God who has saved you. We don't want to be like the nation of Israel. And I would ask you, what kind of Messiah do you love? What kind of Messiah in your own heart do you trust in? What kind of Messiah do you want? Do you want one who is a savior from your sin? Do you want one whom you can rejoice in, whose body was broken and whose blood was spilt 
for you, who defeated death for you. I pray as we gather around the Lord's table this morning that you will examine your own heart, that you will make sure that you know this Messiah and that you love the Messiah who is and the Messiah who came, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Messiah who is returning. For those of us who do know him, it's a time for us to recommit ourselves freshly, remembering that he was, by his mercy, the ones, the one who gave all for our salvation. And we, as living sacrifices, commit ourselves to him and to his glory and to his honor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glory of your word. There is so much that you have told us. So much that you prepared your people for and that you've prepared us for. So much that you have done for us. You have done indeed everything for us. We who should be forever destroyed because of our iniquity and our sin have robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb who know you. We have a kingdom that will never pass away. We who know and feel our own guilt and cry out with the apostle, wretched man that I am, are the ones who have the promise from your own lips that we will stand in your presence, blameless with great joy as we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. We thank you, our God, for a Savior. We thank you, our Lord Jesus, for coming and for purchasing us and for sacrificing all for us. Restore in our hearts, refresh us, revive us as we remember your table. Holy Spirit, come and remind us of the great glory of our King. Instill us with a heart that are zealous to honor you and to live in a way that pleases you and maximizes your glory. And for those here who don't know you, would you remove whatever blinders may remind on their eyes, that though they hear of the covenant, though they read of your word, they do not yet love the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you change that this morning? We pray these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.